bum. So, yeah. So, hello. Uh, Dean Saras here and uh, Steyos. Hi, Steyos. Hello, everyone. And today uh, we have a very special guest, of course, and uh, he needs no introduction. And he's no other than E. Michael Jones for you. Uh, hello, Dr. Jones. How are you? Hello. Good. Good to be here. Thank you for being here. It's an honor for both of us. Uh, so, um, I mean, we have many things to talk about, but uh, since we have a time limit uh, for this recording, um, I should give uh, Steyos the honor to have the first question. So, Steyos, probably something with sex and it's generous. Yeah. yeah, so, as I said, even before the recording, I'm very grateful to be in this situation to talk with Dr. Jones and you, Dean. And uh, I want to say to Dr. Jones that I've known, I've known him since uh, his uh, interviews with Rus, and uh, Rus got, uh, got me to get into Dr. Jones's work. And uh, the, main, the main thing I have to say about, about Dr. Jones's work is that it's revolutionary. And uh, as I, I went to read most of the pages of Libido Dominanti, Dr. Jones, but even from the first pages, uh, it, it got into me how the enlightenment uh, affected the culture that we live today. So my very first question is if you can deepen on this uh, subject for our Greek viewers also uh, to get a chance to know your work. Yeah, well, the Libido Dominandi is a book about uh, sexual liberation and political control. And it began with the Enlightenment. Um, in particular, it began with uh, two people. Uh, one was Adam Weishaupt, who was the uh, founder of a group called the Illuminati. Uh, during the, uh, 1776, I believe, uh, uh, the King of Bavaria uh, discovered this secret society. It was uh, run by a man who was a professor at the University of Ingolstadt, uh, and it was a secret society that was an imitation of the Freemasons, but it was going to be more powerful than the Freemasons mm -hmm. uh, because it had a particular way of organizing uh, the people. And that was based on Jesuit spirituality. The Jesuits had been expelled from, uh, had been suppressed. The whole order had been suppressed by the Pope at the behest of uh, the Duke de Choiseul in France. Uh, but the, the principles that they articulated were still around. And one of the main ideas they had was the idea of uh, examination of conscience, mm -hmm. uh, which was basically uh, you, before you go over your, your life, uh, the sins you've committed in preparation for going to confession. And oftentimes uh, you would have assistance of this with your spiritual advisor. Uh, it was sometimes called the chapter of faults where you'd sit down and you'd talk about your uh, faults in public or, or in private one-on-one -on -one with your spiritual advisor. Now, the prep, this was preparation for going to confession, and during confession, the priest would uh, absolve you from your sins and say, go and sin no more. Mm -hmm. So the whole point of this is to understand your faults and then to overcome them. Well, uh, Weishaupt understood that you could be a revolutionary here, and revolutionaries turn everything upside down. So instead, uh, so he still went through the motions of the uh, examination of conscience, but this time it was to discover the faults 
so that he could use those faults not to get the person to confess, but could control the person. So because what we're talking about is the slavery of sin, what St. Paul would call the slavery of sin, uh, St. Augustine talked about uh, as well. He said a man has as many masters as he has vices. And of course, exactly. he, he said that with the idea of, well, you want to be free of your vices. But there were other people, and we call them revolutionaries, who said, no, no, we can use this. We can turn this upside down. So if I discover your vices, I can control you through the manipulation of your vices, through the manipulation of your passion. And Weishaupt called this process Zelen Analyse. Mm -hmm. And then after uh, the Illuminati documents were discovered and made public, they were made public primarily through a book by Abbe Baruel called uh, The Memoirs for the History of Jacobinism. This book became an underground bestseller uh, throughout, throughout Europe during the 19th century. And one of the people who read it was Sigmund Freud. Mm -hmm. And Sigmund Freud basically based psychoanalysis on Adam Weishaupt's perversion of the Illumina, of uh, the Jesuit uh, examination of conscience. So instead of calling it Zeilen Analyse, which is the German term, an analysis of the soul, uh, Freud took it back to Greek and he called it psychoanalyse or psychoanalysis, which is what it became. Right, psychoanalysis is what is the word that we use today. So that became a way of controlling people on an individual basis. Uh, and Freud did this with his patients. Uh, he, uh, his heir apparent, he needed, it was a Jewish operation, psychoanalysis, mm -hmm. a completely Jewish operation, except for one man, and that was C.G. Jung, Carl Gustav Jung. And Freud saw him as his heir apparent, and the man who was going to, he would be like the St. Paul of psychoanalysis. He was going to introduce it to the Gentile world. Well, they got into a competition and they had a break and there's all sorts of conventional explanation for the break. But I think the real reason is because they were both going after the same rich Americans. The rich Americans would come burdened with the guilt of their, of their sins. Um, Madel McCormick was one of them. And he ended up showing up with, uh, ended up with uh, C.G. Jung. He said, I'm having affairs. I feel guilty. And uh, Jung said, that's okay. I can absolve you. You can go on having affairs, but keep paying me money. Exactly. Well, and Dr. Zones, uh, sorry to interrupt, but uh, you, it's like you read through my quotes here. <laughs> and uh, I've made a quote from the book that uh, it's exactly what you just said. It's like the best way to control a man is to do so without his awareness that he's being controlled. And uh, you mentioned the word consciousness. So do you think that today we have consciousness as people, not only Americans, but like the West uh, as a culture uh, and the people of the West have conscience and uh, or do we buy conscience, just like you said now, can we buy conscience and, and forgiveness? Conscience. Now, did you say conscience or consciousness? The first one. <laughs> For, okay, conscience. Yes. Yeah, well, your conscience is... Uh, your internalization of the moral law. It is you, your conscience is your understanding of the moral law. And when you do something wrong, you, your conscience bothers you. 
So the question is, how do you, how do you deal with conscience? How do you deal with it? Um, do you treat it as a medical problem? That's what Sigmund Freud did. And, and psychoanalysis became a parody of the confession. Because there, you know, the confessional is basically you admit something to someone else, and there's a sacrament involved there, which means some type of divine intervention and grace. But you can have similar effects if you just talk to someone. Uh, because, because the main thing about conscience is if you feel guilty, you don't want to tell anyone. So you have this, you're, you're conflicted. <clears throat> and part of you wants to talk and part of you wants to keep a secret. So the classic example is I dealt with this in another book, uh, my book on horror movies, uh, which is also about sexual liberation. It's called Monsters from the Id. And there's a passage in Dracula, uh, the movie by Bram Stoker where the, the, the main character, I forget what his name is at this point, but he, he goes to Hungary, he goes into Buda, he goes into the castle, Dracula's castle, has a night with three women, kind of hallucinatory night, writes it up in his diary, and then he gets sick and he's in the hospital in Budapest, and his girlfriend, Minna Harker, just Jonathan Harker, Minna Harker, uh, Minna comes up to him, and he says, here is my diary, do not read it. Well, this is contradictory. And this is precisely the contradictory nature of the guilty conscience. In other words, I want to tell you what's bothering me, but I don't want to tell you what's bothering me. And, and the classic example of this in American literature is the Scarlet Letter. It's uh, Reverend Dimsdale on the Scarlet Letter, who stands up. Uh, his, uh, Hester Prynne has been uh, accused of adultery. Well, it takes two to commit adultery. Who's the other person? Well, Dimsdale stands up on the scaffold in the middle of the night and he rips open his chest, his shirt, but there's no one there to see him. So it's a deliberately ambiguous gesture. And this is the classic type of ambiguous gesture that you get with psychoanalysis. In other words, you can feel better simply by telling anybody, you know, like getting yeah, into yeah. a cab and telling the cab driver that you did something. You'll feel better because you told somebody but uh, you better be careful about who you tell it to because they will use it against you. And so what you have here are uh, basically psychoanalysis was that kind of trap. Mm -hmm. It was a trap that basically where Sigma, I already told you about Jung trying to get the rich Americans. He got the Rockefeller McCormick family, but then uh, he beat out Sigmund Freud because I think they prefer to go to a Gentile and not to a Jew. Okay. But uh, there was a man, um, uh, a, uh, an American doctor by the name of Horace Frink uh, who wanted to become a psychoanalysis. He was a medical doctor. But to do that, you had to be in psychoanalysis with Dr. Freud. So he had to go to Vienna. He had to lie down on the couch. And of course, guess what he says? Well, I committed adultery. And he feels guilty about it. And so Freud, once again, is in the position of the father confessor. But instead of saying, well, that's bad. You shouldn't do that. And on top of that, you're sleeping with one of your patients, which violates medical ethics as well. He didn't say any of this. He said, basically, divorce your wife, marry this rich woman, and then give me a big contribution. So he was completely exploitative. Uh, it was a form of control. And oh. that's it, all the way up uh, to, to the end in the 20th century with psychoanalysis. That's what it was. So to summarize that, you're saying that 
psychoanalysis contributed to the destruction of ethics, basically. Right. Yes, it did. And I think Freud, as a Jew, was consciously subversive in that regard. He was always trying to, he had a hatred for uh, Christian culture. Uh, he had a hatred for Rome, a, a particular hatred for Rome, and he identified with Hannibal in some type of weird way. And Hannibal was going to conquer Rome. And that's what uh, Sigmund Freud felt that he was going to do. He was going to conquer the Roman Catholic Church because that was the main spiritual power and the main political power in Vienna uh, during the latter part of the 19th century. So, Dr. Jones, uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can. All right. So, uh, as Stelio said, and you, you, you said now, I see, that, I see a pattern. So, it was Freud that took a book, basically. So, took a philosophy and ideology from a book that was a bestseller underground, like you said. And then, in a way, it seems to me, like uh, Stelio said, that it, it made it commercial. And it boggles my mind because I, I never had thought this before that way that psychoanalysis is basically commercialized confession. Right. And I want to ask you, is also, was Freud um, deliberately trying to uh, lead his people, lead his patients into immorality or was, or was he trying to please them? Because, you know, it was commercial. It was uh, clients, right. you know? Right. Yeah, he had, a, he had a friend in Berlin, a man by the name of Fleece, who thought that every, all uh, problems were related to the nose. He was a, a quack. We would call him a quack in America. Uh, but um, he, Fleece invited him to come to Berlin. And Freud responded by saying, I'd love to come, but I'm afraid my patients will get well in my absence. So this shows you the type of uh, mentality. I th that's, from, that's from the mouth of Sigmund Freud. He had a, a, another, he had a, a cartoon on his wall. It was a lion, picture of a lion. And underneath it, it said, it's already noon and I haven't eaten any Negroes yet. So I think what he's saying is that he's the lion and the patients are the Negroes. And yeah. he had this kind of exploitative relationship uh, with his patients. Uh, in other words, he was there to, to make money, but it was bigger than that because the difference, uh, uh, because Freud was a Jew and he had this residual anim animosity against Christian culture. He wanted to destroy Christian culture and, and this fit and in well with the whole, the other book I wrote called the Jewish revolutionary spirit. If there were, t uh, there was a time when this spirit was really uh, important in late 19th century. Uh, you had people like uh, Trotsky. Uh, this is right around the time Trotsky and the Bolsheviks and Lenin are getting together. Uh, you have World War One when the whole, basically the whole fabric of Christian Europe falls apart. And all of these people, all of these Jewish revolutionaries see their moment, and Freud was one of them. It's just that he had a different uh, type of battle. The, the man who brought these two forms of Jewish revolutionary spirit together, in other words, the psychoanalysis and Bolshevism, was Wilhelm Reich. Yeah. And Wilhelm Reich was a student of Freud. He was also a communist, and he was active in Vienna during the 1930s. 
And he was the one, it's the book he wrote in 1933 is called The Mass Psychology of Fascism. And he is the one who uh, took the idea and, and weaponized it. In other words, how can you create a political program? In other words, he, he was obviously interested. He's a member of the Communist Party. He's also a psychoanalyst. How do you bring these two things together? And he did it by, you could do it by corrupting the morals of the clergy, of the Catholic clergy. That's what you do. Uh, you don't debate, don't debate um, the existence of God with a seminarian. What you do is you corrupt the morals, get him involved in sexual activity. And then Reich said, the idea of God just evaporates from his mind. Well, that's the pro that was the program during the 20th century all over Europe and the United States. I've documented this time and time again, okay? In my, in my latest book, uh, Logos Rising, I talked about uh, the Jews who arrived in Germany after Germany was defeated after World War II. David Mordecai Levy is a Jewish psychiatrist from New York City who showed up as part of the conquering army that in get, it was engaged in imposing psychological warfare on the defeated uh, German people. And he was the one who you had to go to if you wanted to publish a magazine, you want to get a book published, you want to have a, a movie, anything had to go through. You had to get a license from David Mordecai Levy. Really? And when you went to David Mordecai Levy, you had to write an essay. You had to do a kind of version of psychoanalysis. You had to proclaim your guilt as a German, and then you had to go along with what he said. So this is a direct line of influence here. From the, the, the Illuminati to Freud to Reich to David Mordecai Levy. Nobody knows who David Mordecai Levy is. Nobody knows what happened in Germany during the 1950s, where they had a direct assault on the sexual morality of the German people. It was, it's all in my book, uh, uh, Logos Rising. The Catholics tried to fight back. They had an organization called the Volkswagenbund the People's Defense League, and their motto was they were against schmutz und schund. Well, these are archaic words. I mean, talk German today, you say that to a German today, he'll be embarrassed. It's like filth and smut. Are you against filth and smut? Well, they're embarrassed. Germans are embarrassed because they like to talk about science. And of course, America sent a man over to talk about science and sex, and that was Alfred Kinsey. So Alfred Kinsey then became the man who basically shamed the Germans out of their sexual morality because by telling them that it wasn't scientific. So again, you have another assault on the sexual morality. When you give up your sexual morality, they take control. And that's why Germany is the most politically correct country in the world, because it's ruled by Jews who undermine their sexual morality. Stajus, do you want to add something? <laughs> I just... Uh... I'm really impressed by uh, everything that Dr. Jones just said. And uh, as he was talking, uh, I don't know, Dr. Jones, if you, if you have seen the, the series in Netflix uh, about Freud. I did. So I heard you talking about it and I'm like confused because uh, what you talked about happening in Germany in the 50s, it's like uh, what we see today. And uh, today, our doctor uh, that you talked about and his great influence today that can be can be said that it's Netflix and uh, the media 
So everything that gets approval uh, to be broadcasted in YouTube, in Netflix, etc., affects mass society and affects the beliefs of the world, right. just like in the past. So uh, it's clear that we have a, a connection and history repeats itself again. Right. We're talking about a continuum that uh, is the real history of what happened during this period, and it's all been disguised. Now, Freud himself burned his manuscripts, not once, but twice. Mm -hmm. Freud never wanted to, anyone to know what the real source of his material was. Mm. So the whole Oedipus complex, it's all in Nietzsche. It's in the birth of tragedy. All you have to do is read The Birth of Tragedy, and you realize that this is where he got the idea. But Freud didn't want anyone to know that. The same thing is true of the Illuminati manuscripts. Didn't want anyone to know that. So obviously, you're faced with uh, bad history, bad education, because everybody who is, considers themselves an educated person knows who Sigmund Freud is, but nobody knows the real story of Sigmund Freud. That's, that's what education is there to do. It's to give you a false narrative to make you confused. And you're supposed to think that Freud was some type of scientist, and you're supposed to think that sexual morality is the opposite of science. It has no basis in reality. And that's the way they lead you into the trap. And I'm not, when I say you, I'm talking about entire countries. And the classic example was Germany and the United States. These are countries more so Germany because they had the ability to inflict ruthless social engineering on Germany because it was a conquered nation. The first, the first plan for Germany was created by a Jew called Morgenthau, who was Franklin Roosevelt's secretary of state. And that plan was to starve the Germans to death. This is what the Jews had in mind. And at that point, the, the, the adults in the room, the WASP ruling class, symbolized by George Marshall, said, no, no, we need the Germans. And so in Harvard, in, in 1947, he shows up at Harvard, he announces the Marshall Plan, which is the opposite of the Morgenthau Plan. In other words, we're going to give the Germans money. They're good people. Uh, uh, and we need them as a bul bulwark against communism. That's basically the whole, the whole story. So we'll build them up. Well, we, they build them up financially, but they tore them down morally. Because so they, they, can, they can be controlled more easily. That's right, because we need those Germans to make those Mercedes and, and uh, BMWs. Uh, and and folks, for me, for us in America, it was the Volkswagen, which everybody bought one in, 19, in the 1960s. They were the cheapest car available because Germans the, were the great Beetle. workers. Yeah. yeah, the Beetle. So we need them. Uh, as as productive workers, but we need to control them as well. So this is how you get the, the best of both worlds. This is how you get to have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Jones, I, I have to add something. I was, uh, when, I, when I went to Germany, I was six years in Munich. So uh, I lived there and it has astonished me that uh, Germans were very productive, like you said. So they were very industrialized, you know, BMWs all over around, organized. No, it was a political, you know, a shock for me, for a Greek. But something that was a bigger shock that I couldn't expect was the demoralization, you know, the degeneracy that I found there. Did you go, did you go into the English garden? Yeah, yeah, of course. Von, of course. Von, 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 von Wannsee in München. Yeah. Wann waren Sie da? 
Ah, when, when was it? Uh, yeah. Uh, when, were, when were you in, when were yeah, you in yeah. Munich? What six years? <laughs> I forgot. Yeah, uh, 2000. Yes, 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 Deutsch. Yeah, let's okay. press, uh, yeah, I can't. Uh, <laughs> so it was uh, 2000 to 2006. Okay, uh, so, you, yeah. so you went into the English garden. Yep. And there you see all the Germans lying naked in the English garden in the middle of Munich. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and not, not only that, you know, Dr. Jones, I was, uh, you know, I was uh, adolescent then, back then. So I was with my brother. My brother was uh, older. And, you know, German girls were, were much more, I, I don't know how to express this, much more easily available to, for sexual activity. So than right. Greek girls. Right. And that astonished me. The contrast was so profound. I couldn't believe it because it was from another from from one side you have a very industrialized community very organized and Munich was kind of uh, traditional so it wasn't like Berlin it was kind of traditional right still. you're right it's Catholic Munich is Catholic yeah. and Berlin is Protestant Frauenkirche and uh, all the, the the churches there it's beautiful and it's so, a beautiful city yeah, yeah it's it's beautiful museums everything parks um, really beautiful ancient city so beautiful but the degeneracy. Ah, uh, yeah. Now makes sense. Now, this, now. Look, this, this is the plan. Munich, the, these Germans are the ideal world citizens because they're wage slaves and they're sexual robots. And these, that's the type of person that the oligarchs want us all to be. Wage slaves, you work hard and you're sexually liberated, so you're easy to control and you're not going to get uppity. So what this is the like Foucault uh, was the guy who did the deal, but I mean basically the deal. What is the deal now? The new deal of the left. You give us sexual liberation, we won't ask for a raise. We won't we won't complain about your economic system. That's the deal. Foucault did it, and that's the world that we live in. That's the world the oligarchs want to impose on the entire world now. The entire world. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if Tim wants to add something. Uh, no, I can add a lot of things and ask, but uh, go, go ahead, Sayers, <laughs> go ahead. But that, I mean, uh, one, one, just one other thing, to, just to add on what you say. In 1975, I went to Berlin and I was living with Palestinians. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And they went crazy because if you think you were in a state of shock, just think what Muslims felt like going to Berlin. Exactly. They were just, they went crazy because you're not allowed to drink and they live, they come from a very traditional puritanical society. Exactly. You know, the women wear, wear headscarves. They wear the hijab, you know, and they come to Berlin and they go crazy. They go, they go absolutely crazy, you know, yeah. and, they, and they were angry. They were angry at people like me. So I had to take the brunt of their anger because I was an American and I was responsible for this whole for this whole mess that, that they were in. They really they couldn't talk about the sexual mess. They didn't want to talk about that. So they talked about the political mess. And they, they, he's the guy, uh, this Arab who's talking to me, calls me a Zionist pig. And I said, I, I, OK, I know what a pig is, but what's a Zionist? I didn't even know what a Zionist was at this point. You know, I'm, I'm just saying that the shock you felt as a Greek was magnified a hundred times when you talk about the shock that the Muslims felt when they go there. 
And uh, uh, my, my question is directly affected by what you just said. So I believe after three, three generations, people become degenerates also. And let me uh, explain. Let's say that the Muslims that come to Greece today as immigrants and uh, give them three generations and their kids and their grandkids will be the same as, uh, will be the same as degenerates are everyone of uh, the other people. So, as I see it, if uh, Christianity falls and uh, Christianity is no, no longer, let's say, the majority of people, because here in Greece, the majority of people consider themselves Orthodox Christians. So in three generations from now, I don't, uh, I don't know where the world is going. So uh, can't, you, can't you imagine a future without uh, religion, without morals, and uh, even worse than today, of course. So my question is this. So what's going to happen in three generations to the Muslim immigrants? The Muslim okay. immigrants and the, and the inhabitants of Greece. Okay. And all okay. over Europe. Okay. Greece, Greece is no different. It's a small, it's a small country, has an ancient culture, uh, but it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable. The main problem with Greece is Germany uh, because of the debt. Greece is uh, struggling with debt, and uh, debt is another form of slavery. These are the two main forms of slavery, sexual liberation and debt. And Greece is now struggling with that, trying to maintain its culture, uh, a small culture. It's no different than Croatia, uh, Armenia, Estonia, you have all of these little countries with their language, a unique language that is the basis of their culture and how do you preserve this culture? In the, wave, in the, wa in the face of mass migration that is calculated to destroy you. There's a, you have to make a difference here between migration of individuals and mass migration. And mass migration is always a weapon. It's always a weapon. And the, exactly. we, had this in, we had this in the United States, the Catholic communities, when they brought all the black people up from the South. That was weaponized migration, and it destroyed all of the ethnic neighborhoods in the big cities of, of, of the North. So, but to, to get back to the question here, you have two different issues here. You have the individual, and I know Muslims. I spent time in Iran. I know Iranians. Uh, the Iranians are completely different than the Arabians, the Saudis, they are completely different, okay? They are a tradition as ancient as Greece, okay? Of course. Read, read Herodotus, okay? Read we, Herodotus. We got we right. got you've, got the, you've got the Greeks and the Persians going toe-to-toe, -to -toe, okay? So it's as, as ancient as the Greeks. And, and in Rome, the Parts. And what? And in uh, Roman times also. Right, okay, so it's way, be way before Rome, you've got the, the conf confrontation between Persia and Greece, and the Persians then end up being conquered by camel jockeys and goat herders from Arabia, and they impose this Islam on them, and it doesn't fit. It still doesn't fit, even though it's an Islamic Republic. And so you have an individual educated, they, 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 they are like Germans in this regard, the Iranians prize education. So you get these people who are educated, they're nuclear physicists, they come to France, and immediately they lose their uh, Islamic faith. Okay, and they become atheists. So the Iranians I talk to in France, there's a, he's an atheist. And I'm trying to say, look, I, I understand where you're coming from, I understand about Islam, 
but atheism is irrational. It's an irrational ideology, and it's based on your psychological problems. So I don't want to talk about psychology. And I convinced him that he has to believe in God. There's no, there's no question. There's no, it's not optional. If you're a rational creature, you have to accept that there is a God. It's that simple. Whether you believe in Christ or not, that's another issue. That's faith. Okay? I totally that's, agree with that's, that. That's the individual. Okay? But the point is that they don't come as individuals. They come as large groups. And you have a place like France where they have whole uh, uh, suburbs where they're, they're Muslims. And at this point, the church is weak uh, in France, largely because of the French Revolution, and secularism will not solve that problem. On the other hand, you have large groups of Muslims coming to England. They come to London, and they have traditional values. And now the English, who are completely decadent because they come from a Protestant country, which cannot retain the moral order, complete decadence in England, and they try to impose gender ideology and homosexuality and transgenderism on the Muslims, and the Muslims won't accept it. The Muslims protest, and so in England you have a situation where you as a Christian could make an alliance with the Muslims on this issue, on the issue of sex education. That's the same situation in France, and I think uh, yeah. Soral and Dieu Donné have done this. They understand that there is a, a moral common ground, and that's where, that's where we need to work. Because if, other, if you don't have the religion, if you, and this is precisely the problem here, and, and all across Europe, if you don't have a religious basis, you become a white guy. And as soon as you become a white guy, you lose the battle. That's what's happening in the United States. That's what happened. the stigma. The stigma. Well, it's, it's, it's not your identity. So I have, a, you know, I have a, a, a guy I know in Croatia. His name is Tom Sunich, and he thinks he's a white guy. I said, Tom, you're not a white guy. You're a Croat. Yeah. That's what your identity is. You speak Croatian. You don't speak white. You know what I mean? But because he lost his connection with Catholicism, which is the basis for the Croat uh, people, it's their language and their religion. The only difference between a Croat and a Serb is the difference between Catholicism and, and Orthodoxy. They speak the same language. They have the same DNA. That's the crucial difference, and that is the crucial difference. So what you have now, right now, is an attempt to separate uh, countries like Ireland, which is another country like Greece, okay, that had a, a small country that has an identity, well, you separate them from their religion, and they're destroyed. Google conquered Ireland. Google conquered Ireland. They're slaves now because they gave up the Catholic faith. That's the problem. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, the gay disco, like you said. <laughs> the gay disco of Ireland, yeah. Yes. Um, no, I don't know. Uh, if I can add to that, uh, when I was in Munich, by the way, I didn't mention that, but uh, there was a huge Turkish community. So, yes. And the Turks, I remember, they had ghettos. So they, yes. Greeks had kind of, they were together, but not so much. But uh, really in the center, I think it was near Kaufhof, near, uh, near the center of the city, it was a huge uh, Turkish ghetto. And there yes. were all the women, you know, wearing the baklavas or whatever you right. call this. The hijab. Hijabs, yes. And I remember the shock that you just described in France, in England, 
and the whole world in Greece too, in Ireland. I remember distinctly that there was, you know, Turkish guys, boys, uh, adolescent men were different than us, were even more puritanic, you know. And right. Their reaction to German girls was even more intense. Yes. I remember. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Crazy. And they, they, so think of you just, you just arrived from Turkey. You're a teenage boy and you came, your parents came over on a boat and you were raised in some small village in Turkey. And now you're walking through the English garden and there are all these German girls lying there naked. What this is going to, they didn't know what to do. This is exactly the situation that I saw in Berlin. It was 20 years earlier. Uh, but at that point, they had a, a Turkish, uh, what was the Turkish neighborhood in Berlin? Uh, I forget the name of it. But anyway, it was all Turks. You, and, and so the, the, how do I know this? Because I'm watching television and there's a mad dog running around this neighborhood. Well, they make the announcement in German, but then the Turks are not going to understand what they're saying. They don't speak German. So they have to make the announcement about the mad dog in Turkish. You know, well, that was then. Now, those people had children and those children now uh, are uh, adults and they have had children. Yeah. And so the question is, are you going to be able to maintain Turkish culture in, in Germany? Three yeah, generations. Like, three, you, exactly. like you said, yeah. yeah. That's right. Three generations is the crucial uh, time frame because in, in America, after three generations, you lose your ethnic, the ethnic identity of your grandparents and you take on the religious identity, if you have one, uh, of an American. And so it's called the triple melting pot in America. So you may come from Ireland or Germany, but after three generations, your ethnic identity is Catholic. So as I said before, America is just like Yugoslavia, uh, three ethnic groups based on three religions. So I... But, so the question is, where does Greece, you tell me, where does Greece fit into all this? Where does, what's, tell me what's happening there. Uh, so I don't know if I can start in, in Canada. Yeah. Uh, I see Greece uh, in three generations, not only not being Christian, uh, but uh, being total atheist country, as I see it from now. And uh, I live in Cyprus, Dr. Jones, where I'm doing my master's in ancient history. And uh, in Cyprus, the country of one million people, uh, the same thing exactly is happening. Cyprus has like uh, three, 300,000 uh, refugees and immigrants, and all of them are in Indian origin, African. And uh, I, can't, I can't imagine a future where all these people blend together uh, and become, let's say, homogenized uh, with the country, the culture, the religion. So. And that, that was one of my notes also. How do you see the world going? Will we see a, a society like in the movies of Mad Max without uh, oil? Will we see an Orwellian world? Will we see a Huxley's world? Or even we, we will see William Barrows' world where a virus destroys, destroys the whole population and, and affects everyone. And that's, it. that's my biggest concern, Dr. Jones. Okay, so what, what happened over uh, 2019 is consciousness. The internet enabled all kinds of conversations 
and the conversations turned out to be more persuasive than the main media, the mass media uh, explanation of events. And so as a result, the oligarchs lost control of the narrative during 2019. And the manifestation of this is called hate speech, which is basically a Jewish creation. The Jews are very concerned because they have to control the narrative because they feel as soon as they lose control of the narrative, they're all going to be rounded up and sent to concentration camps. This, this is the way Jews feel. So they're very concerned about preserving the, their control over the narrative. But they lost. Uh, the, the, main, the point of a, a, a narrative is that you adopt it and you don't think it's a narrative. You think that, well, this is what educated people exactly. believe. This is education. Exactly. I mean, I know, who Sigmund, I, I, I know who Sigmund Freud is. I mean, Sigmund Freud was a very in, uh, important thinker in human history, and he talked about the Oedipus complex. Well, you've internalized the narrative. That's not the real story. And so what happened over 2019, uh, largely uh, perhaps through books like Libido Dominandi, what happened with Libido Dominandi over 2019? I wrote that book 25 years ago. And then suddenly a whole new generation woke up and realized they were completely addicted to pornography and masturbation. And nobody could explain what was going on because they thought it was freedom and they knew it wasn't. But how can you, well, the book helped explain that. And large numbers of people simply woke up and stopped, uh, broke the addiction. And that's really difficult. That's a significant event. And when that happened, Rolling Stone condemned them. There was a no-fap uh, November, they boycotted pornography and masturbation, and the oligarchs saw it, and they were condemned by Rolling Stone magazine for doing it, and they were called anti-Semites. Well, that's significant. It's like, it's like the thought police came through. Right. Well, the point here is now we know that there are thought police. We know that. We didn't know that before. We they thought don't we hide were it no, no, they don't hide it anymore because now the ADL there. So I just tweeted something. I said, the Jews who control the media told the Jews, the Jew who controls Facebook to ban anyone from Facebook who says the Jews control the media. Well, we know we're being controlled now. And as soon as you know, this, the whole point of when you began this discussion, you said it's a good form of control because you don't know you're being controlled. Well, that's exactly right. That's the whole point of it. And now we know that that's a form of control. And so it doesn't work as effectively as it did in the past. And so now you have to have force imposed on people. And once they realize that it's being imposed on them, they're going to rebel. And now you have this dialectic of history, you know, in motion now. And, and we, we can see that it's in motion now, where is it going to go? Well, we as, as Christians know that the Logos is not simply abstract principles like geometry. Mm -hmm. It's a person. And because it's a person, it's a force in human history. And that's encouraging because we know what that force in human history believes. And we know that it cares for us because it was revealed to us. You know, and this is sort of the whole gist of the Logos rising. So once you have that, uh, your strength, that gives you strength. And when you have strength, you can stand up against overwhelming odds. If you have the strength and you have unity, that's what the Greeks did. 
That's what the Greeks did at Thermopylae. Okay, and they didn't have Christianity at that point. All they had was unity, and they had uh, uh, a national thumos. identity. And they had thumos. Thumos. That, thumos. That's the word. That's the word. Uh, we use the word courage, courage here. Do same. you st is is thumos a word in modern Greek? No, no, no. We we use the uh, the word courage. Uh, you say it as courage. Right, right. Courage. So you got it from the Italians. Yeah. So yeah. thumos, I believe it's uh, what uh, you Americans use as uh, the mental and uh, the mental strength to to do to do good to battle with evil and all right. stuff like that. And, right. Uh, can I comes from something? the chest? Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. And chest. Oh, the chest. Oh, oh okay. Um, Donald Jones, regarding the the, the, the whole thing of uh, having a basis, you know, having uh, Christ as your your basis, your foundation, your logos. Today, I went to, to the supermarket to buy something, you know, to eat, and uh, everybody was wearing masks. So, I, you know, everybody was wearing masks, and I didn't wear a mask because I thought that, you know, um, you know, it's a rational thing for me. I don't wear masks, so blah, blah, blah. And I went to the counter, and, and the lady there, uh, you know, she told me something about wearing a mask. So she basically told me that I should oblige to the rules and right. wear a mask. Yes. And I'm saying all this because I, I said to share, uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't confront and share. I didn't say that you are stupid, blah, blah, blah. What I said basically was that, uh, you know, I believe in God and I believe also that uh, the Greek people fought fascism years ago, many times over. My grandfather also uh, was the Nazis. And, uh, you know, and when I said that, when I said those two things, she started having some, like uh, Stelio said, some courage, some courage. Right. And she started basically talking with me. And then another lady and another man started watching uh, that were beside me. And that was very encouraging for me um, because I felt a little bit hopeless. And I want your opinion on that, on the mask thing, on how you see things like Steyo said, how should we be hopeful or basis and, you know, what can we do? Because I don't see many people standing up for their rights no. and for porn also. That's the same. It's, it's, right. a, it's a, you know, it's a depth. It's something that right. enslaves you. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, the, the COVID virus is the latest attempt to bring people under control. The point of this is to uh, deny Trump re-election in the fall. It's that simple. Okay. It's being manipulated. There may be a real virus out there. I believe there is. I believe it was weaponized in a lab in Wuhan, but it's still a, a virus and it behaves like a virus. And most people are immune to, to, to viruses because they have an immune system. So there's uh, so what, what are we talking about here across the board? We're talking about logos. Okay. First of all, there is a logos to the virus. There is a logos to the uh, human body, which has an immune system, which is created to defeat uh, the virus. But secondly, the culmination of this is the logos that you uh, brought to bear when you started talking to this lady, because the most fundamental expression of logos is human speech. And you share a language. Very, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'd say very few people in the world speak Greek. 
compared to English or any other language. I mean, I'm glad we speak English because we couldn't have this conversation if we didn't. But the whole point of Greek identity is bound up with the Greek language because you can talk to each other in an intimate fashion in a way that no one else in the world can talk to you. And this is the basis of ethnic identity. And so you need to bring all of these things together and start talking to the Greek people in their language and telling them that uh, fear is useless. This is a weapon. It's being used against you. And we have to find some way of dealing with it as Greeks, as Greeks. So I'm saying you, what, what you're talking about here is the, the particular joining up with the universal. And both, what's the connection between the particular and the universal? It's a logos. It's logos. That is, the, that is the basis from which we can organize opposition to this worldwide attempt of the oligarchs to turn us all into sexual robots and wage slaves. Exactly. And uh, it's like the Stoic philosopher said, when you, when you throw fear away, you become uh, free. And like we Christians believe that uh, we don't have to, be, to fear about the future because in the future, Christ resurrected. That's and, right. Uh, there is a future. So I don't know. It's like uh, that exactly with my question before. If uh, we are really are Christians, what are we afraid of? Right. Perfect love drives out fear. That's in the, the Gospels. And it would be foolish. Now I'm getting feedback all around, all over the world about Logos, Logos rising. People are reading the book all over the world. And they're saying to me, look, it's either Logos or it's Christianity. You can't have it both ways. Well, no. <laughs> You're looking at it from a completely ahistorical perspective. Because Greece was the, crucial, was the crucial turning point in this regard. It's when St. Paul went to Athens. And St. Paul fails because he's talking like a Jew. He says, to, he says well, you've got to talk, I want to talk to you about this man. This man rose from the dead. He's talking to the Areopagus. These are philosophers. He thinks he's talking to the silversmiths in Ephesus. They're idol worshipers. And they all look at him and they say, no, we'll, t we'll talk to you some other time. Uh, we'll see you later. And exactly it, took, it, took another, it took another 500 years before Christianity took, got, took hold in Athens because of Paul's failure. And I'm saying it was St. John who understood the failure and saying, this is a new world. This is a new world. We've got to talk to Greeks now. We can't just talk to other Jews. We've got to talk to Greeks. And if you're going to talk to Greeks, you have to speak Greek. And if you're going to speak Greek, you have to use the words. And the main word that we have to use is logos. And this was a transition. It's in many ways the whole intellectual turning point of human history when suddenly this Greek concept got expanded. The church, didn't, the church didn't come in and say, no, no, that's a pagan idea. Logos, it was, it was Heraclitus. He wasn't a Christian. We can't use this word. That's not what the church did. The church said, no, they, we are going to validate. We are going to say this was a valuable contribution, and God is not going to turn his back on one of the most significant intellectual events in human history, the Greek miracle. He's not going to turn his back on that. He's going to raise it to a higher level. This is exactly what Hegel would talk, call Aufhebel, raising it to a, not abandoning it, 
exalt and maintain. You're not abandoning that attempt. You're raising it to a higher level. And if you don't accept that higher level, you will be left behind by the course of history. And as I said in Logos Rising, the main book, that, the main group that got left behind was Islam because they could not make that transition. They could not understand the depth of Logos. So we are in the same situation. We cannot pretend that Christianity did not exist. We cannot pretend that Christianity did pretend that it did not redeem Logos. It did redeem Logos. It raised Logos to a higher level, and we will be foolish and stupid if we reject that moment in history. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Stelios, uh, we're closing on the hour, so uh, I don't know. Do you want to add something? Dr. Jones, do you have any last message for, for all the young men here, all the young boy Greek yes. men? Yes. Yes. I fear Greeks even when they're bearing gifts. No, I'm, I'm not going to say it. Uh, go, to, go to... That's true. Go to... Go to... And not the go to, go, go to culturewars.com. Because that's the way we can establish secure channels of communication. Uh, because uh, if it's the internet, the 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 oligarchs can interrupt this uh, conversation anytime they YouTube. want. We have to YouTube. establish, well, I've already been banned. I have no YouTube channel. I've been banned from Amazon. We need to establish secure channels of communication. So go to culturewars.com and buy a book. Yeah. Buy Logos Rising. Every Greek, every Greek should read Logos Rising because it's Greek culture. This is about a Greek word. And there's no other word in the universe that you can use because only the Greeks had that word. That's why I had to put it in the title of my book. Logos, logiki. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know about the Eustace, but I, I am, um, you know, it was, it has been a while since I had such a beautiful afternoon, uh, morning there in USA, I guess. Yes. Uh, me also, Dean, me also. And, uh, after this talk, I will be, it's like I resurrected and I'm not exaggerating right now yeah. because uh, Dr. Jones has more energy than yeah. a thousand of us. That's crazy, by the way. I have to say, Dr. Jones, uh, I, don't, I don't know how many people know this about you or at least I, I acknowledge this. You, you robe, by the way. You, you, you exercise, you, you walk, you do things and, you know, I think young people should do that too. No, it clears yes. the mind. Yes, it does. I, I rode five miles this morning on the St. Joseph River. That's amazing. In, four, in 42 minutes. So, uh, yes, I encourage, uh, I couldn't do it without uh, physical activity. So come over and row. We'll bring a trireme. Get the trireme <laughs> together, and I will come to Greece and row your trireme with you. Now, that's a promise. Uh, If you come to Crete, Dr. Jones, we can drink some raki. I don't know okay. raki. <laughs> yeah. I, pre I prefer the trireme. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right then. All right then. Uh, and let's hope uh, we meet again, Dr. Jones, yes. sometime in the future. Maybe again, do something again. Who knows? I mean, these times are weird. So that's a good thing about the internet. We can meet, we can talk. Yes. It's the Greek moment. Yeah. yeah. Logos is rising. We hope so. And we, we believe so. 
So, yeah, uh, from me, I say goodbye to both of you. Goodbye to Kingstone. Goodbye, Stelios. And goodbye to everybody. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Ciao.